chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Challenging passage. But to you who are willing to listen, Lord, make us willing. I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. If someone demands your coat, offer your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. Do to others as you would like them to do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for he is kind to those who are, unthank- who, those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. The word of the Lord. Hmm. Lord, make us willing to listen. Well, last week we uh, spent some time in the Beatitudes, We talked about the Beatitudes as a geography for blessing. You might recall we looked at the interpretation of the Beatitudes that that said, not necessarily blessed are you who are poor, hungry, reviled, excluded, but a different kind of, of reading that said you're in the right place if you are poor, hungry, reviled, or excluded. You're in the right place if you're among those who are poor, hungry, reviled, and excluded. And we said last week that Jesus is speaking these Beatitudes from a place of having been in each of these states of being. Jesus himself was, at one time or another during his earthly life and ministry, poor, hungry, reviled, excluded. He suffered in these ways. He was defamed. All of these things that he's proclaiming blessing over, he had himself experienced. And what I want to say this morning that I I don't know that we emphasized fully last week was that Jesus' entrance into these experiences transforms them for our good. Jesus' entrance into these experiences of poverty, hunger, exclusion, isolation, revilement transforms them for our good. As we said last week, Jesus was poor, yet he lavishes the riches of his grace on us. See how he transforms the experience of poverty, transforms the experience of hunger. He was hungry, yet from his fullness we receive. Jesus was reviled, yet his rejection makes us acceptable. Jesus was excluded, yet his isolation roots us in love. Jesus suffered, yet his body hosts the broken. Jesus died, yet his tomb nourishes a seed And Jesus was resurrected, and he offers us his life. Jesus enters into these experiences to transform them. However, his entrance into each of these states, poverty, hunger, revilement, exclusion, does not mean that we are spared them. It does not take us out of these experiences. He's not saving his followers from these experiences, but making a way for his followers to live creatively and transformatively in the same way that 
Jesus did. So to extend the metaphors of geography and planting that we sort of used as our guiding framework last week, we might say that Jesus, through his life and suffering and death, breaks ground. He paves the way for his followers to follow him, and he, he sows seed that they can harvest. What he plants in his life, his suffering, and his death germinates, and it ultimately brings forth fruit, both for his followers and through his followers. So I want to take a look at what that might look like as we look at Luke chapter 6 and compare it with so Jesus' activity in Luke 6 and what he does and what he says compared with over in Acts, this two-volume work, Luke-Acts, how that translates to the harvest that his disciples experience. So the ways that his disciples imitate his works and carry out his speech after he is ascended. So Jesus is no longer in the scene in Acts, but we find his disciples doing some of the same things that he does and carrying out his vision that he lays out here in Luke chapter 6. Does that kind of make sense? That's where we're headed this morning. We'll look at a couple of specific instances of what Jesus says being carried forward after his ascension and the descent of his spirit. So, the first example that we'll look at this morning of groundbreaking work that Jesus does in Luke chapter 6 that his disciples later imitate is hosting the broken and offering healing. Hosting the broken and offering healing. So let's look at one of Jesus' healings. This is the one that sets the stage for the Beatitudes that we looked at last week. In Luke chapter 6, we read in verses 6 through 10, on another Sabbath, the day is important here, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said, he, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. A remarkable story. Now, fast forward to the book of Acts. Peter and John, as Jesus enters the synagogue, as was his custom, Peter and John are praying at the appointed hour. Like Jesus' pattern of entering the synagogue each Sabbath, pattern prayer shapes the lives of his followers. And let's read about their hosting the broken and offering healing in Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And just as Jesus 
the man, man by the withered hand. He took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So during Jesus' ministry, he hosts the broken, offers them healing. Jesus hosts the broken at tables. He hosts the broken at the synagogue. He hosts the broken on the road. Everywhere he goes, he's preparing a table, hosting the broken. And as his body, the church, as the disciples demonstrate to us here in Acts chapter 3, as his body, the church, we are called to the same work of hospitality, that same work of hosting the broken. What's striking here is that the work of hosting that we see from Peter and John does not require an abundance of resources. On the contrary, it requires us to be upfront about our own lack. We see this in their statement to the man, silver and gold we don't have. They're upfront about their own lack. In other words, nothing I possess can help you. But help is available because of the groundbreaking work of the one who came before me. In Matthew's gospel, we see this, again, this idea of hosting the broken and offering healing and release and liberation tied to this idea that wealth really has nothing to do with it. In Matthew, Jesus instructs his disciples. He says in Matthew chapter 10, cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And here it is, you receive without payment, give without payment. The first groundbreaking work Jesus does is to, to host the broken and to offer them healing. We see his disciples doing the same, not because following Jesus gives them the, the financial security to make it easy, to make hospitality uh, doable, but because following Jesus puts them in the right place to interact with, to host, to give and receive blessing. The next groundbreaking work that Jesus does that his disciples later imitate is meeting opposition with prayer. Meeting opposition with prayer. So when Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are you when people hate you, he utters these words having experienced hatred himself. We see an example of this opposition in Luke chapter 6 verse 11, right on the heels of this healing miracle. After Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, but they... In verse 11, the scribes and the Pharisees were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. And after he's opposed by the Pharisees, how, how does Jesus respond? We read in verse 12, in these days, and in most Bibles there's like a heading that breaks these two up, and I think this is one of the spots where the headings are, are uh, I don't know, maybe unhelpful. <laughs> in these days... As he was being opposed in response to opposition in these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve who were named apostles. So jump ahead again to Acts chapter 4. Immediately following this miracle, 
or not long after this miracle, we have a few verses there in Acts chapter 3 of the disciples, Peter and John, proclaiming the word of the Lord. But in response to the miracle and the proclamation of the good news, we read this. As they were speaking to the people, Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. We read in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, that the the Pharisees were enraged. In Acts chapter 5, verse 33, we, we see the same language. This time, the officials upset with the early believers. They were enraged and wanted to kill them. But listen again, to how the believers respond, like Jesus who responds to opposition with prayer. After they were released, after Peter and John were were released from their imprisonment, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard it, they raised their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them, and they begin a prayer. These words, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. This happens to be one of the opening refrains in Psalm 146, which we read for our call to worship a week ago. And I think we could probably spend uh, an entire Sunday just on the, the prayer that the people of God pray for Peter and John after their release. While we're not given any detail about what Jesus prays in Luke chapter 6, we have basically what amounts to a full transcript of the believer's prayer in Acts chapter 4. And rather than going through it at length this morning, I just want to point out a couple of things about that prayer that kind of maybe present a a framework for how we, as followers of Jesus, might meet opposition with prayer. So first, their prayer points to Jesus' example of having faced opposition. The early church, the early believers, draw strength from Jesus' groundbreaking work. Their prayer recounts the opposition that Jesus faced. In Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, we read, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So first, they recount Jesus having faced opposition. They draw strength from his example, his groundbreaking work. And secondly, their prayer ends with a request to God, an entreaty to God. And notice what's really striking about this entreaty is not that God would deliver them from opposition or adversity or suffering, but to enable them to enter it and to do so boldly and to creatively transform it. In verses 29 and 30, they they pray, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So as we hear this prayer in Acts chapter 4, alongside Luke 6, it really makes me wonder what Jesus prayed in Luke chapter 6. We're given no detail other than what happens immediately before and after. 
So he responds to opposition with prayer, and then right after that prayer, what does he do? He, he goes and calls and chooses his disciples. So having read this prayer in Acts chapter 4, I can't help but wonder if Jesus' prayer in Luke chapter 6 actually sounds a lot like what his followers pray in Acts chapter 4. Can't you almost hear Jesus praying for his soon-to-be-chosen disciples in this way? And now, Lord, look upon the threats that we're receiving and grant that these 12 might speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. Don't you wish you could have heard that prayer that Jesus prayed before choosing the 12, that uneducated bunch, (laughs) those who, by the world's standards, probably shouldn't have gotten along and maybe at times didn't get along? No wonder Jesus spent all night (laughs) in prayer before choosing them and calling them. While we don't know what he prays in Luke chapter 6, we are given an idea of what he prays for Peter on the night of the Last Supper. In Luke chapter 22, we read this account. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. And you, once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So like the early church later would pray for Peter and John, Jesus is saying, I have prayed for you, not to take you out of this sifting process, but that your, strength, your faith might be strengthened, and in turn, that you would turn and strengthen your brothers. Again, Jesus goes through opposition, suffering, hunger, poverty, all of these states, revilement, exclusion, not to spare us from them, to transform them to be sure, but not to spare us from them, to give us an example of how to live into these things, these trying experiences, creatively and transformatively. I think it's worth noting here that every time the believers pray in the book of Acts, they're not praying for protection or safety but rather they're praying for boldness, for boldness. Whatever it is that Jesus prays, by the time he chooses the 12, he's certainly not calling them to a life of security and ease. You might remember a couple of chapters earlier in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is uh, taken to the edge of a cliff to be thrown off. So who's going to want to follow that guy? I mean, it seems like in pretty short order, he's going to be thrown off of a cliff. If you're going to follow him, I mean, the transit of property here, right? You're, you are yourself headed off of the, the cliff. If he's going to call and choose you, you're certainly not being called and chosen for a life of security or ease or financial abundance. You're being chosen, if I might put maybe too fine a point on it here, you're being chosen to die, (laughs) to follow him to death, and the kind of death that is brought about by revilement and exclusion. I'm not sure I'd want to accept his call, especially if I had seen what had happened when people led him to the edge of the cliff. 
Yet it's from that place of exclusion that Jesus chooses the 12. I think that's worth reflecting on. And it completely shakes up their lives. In Acts, and this one might be a little bit of a stretch, but the early believers experience a shaking up of a, of a different kind. So following their prayer in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God. Again, here's that word, with boldness. So just as Jesus calls and chooses his disciples after praying, the early Christian community prays, and following that, the Spirit comes as evidence of their having been called and chosen. And I don't think it's by accident that the Spirit's coming has the effect of shaking things up, maybe shaking them out of their comfort zone, shaking them into the place that they have to pray for boldness. So we see evidence of Jesus' groundbreaking work, not only in the way that he hosts the broken and offers healing, not only in the way that he meets opposition with prayer, but also in the way that he envisions community life. And here's where we arrive back at this morning's gospel text, the way that he envisions community life. Uh, As part of our renovations uh, here in the sanctuary, we put up a a clock. I don't know if that was a response to last week's uh, message or what, but I see a clock back there now. Um, Thank you to those of you who are sending that maybe not so subtle message. The clock (laughs) looks great, by the way. Jesus breaks ground not only in the way that he hosts the broken and offers healing, not only in the way that he meets opposition with prayer, but in the way that he envisions community life. So let's listen again to the first part of his directives here in the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, Luke chapter 6, we'll read verses 27 through 31, and as we do so, I'd like us to pay attention to, are you ready for this? Pay attention to who participates in community in these verses. I've given you a handhold. I think I've highlighted some words up here. But pay attention to who participates in Jesus' vision of community. But I say to you that listen. Man, I wish he hadn't said that. I say to you that listen. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So we'll say more about this vision of community that Jesus presents here in a moment. But let's again fast forward to the book of Acts and see how this plays out in the lives of the early Christian community. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. So immediately after, the, we've got this pattern, right, of healing, opposition, meeting that with prayer, prayer kind of shaking things up, boldness, and then Jesus, the seeds that he plants for this vision of community life are, are kind of bursting forth here at the end of Acts chapter 4. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, 
what everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Wow. We could probably spend the rest of our time this morning, or maybe the rest of time, <laughs> thinking about these countercultural ways of being a community, a community of called followers of Jesus, and the implications of the kinds of things that Jesus says here and the, the kinds of things that we find the early church doing in Acts chapter 4. But for our purposes this morning, well, I, I, note, note, first of all, the lack of bookkeeping in Luke chapter 6 and in Acts chapter 4. Or maybe you'd note the, the unapologetic focus on generosity with money and with possessions in both of these passages. I do think that one possible connection between these two passages is to say that if there's ever hope for us to live in these ways toward our enemies, we need to practice developing the habits of heart, these generous habits among our friends. So recall those, those friends who pray for Peter and John. If we're ever going to do this in the presence of our enemies, we had better... I'm talking about like here at Solid Rock. We'd better get comfortable or get uncomfortable doing them here among our friends. Again, though, I, I think it's, it's worth noting something that we might miss if we read too quickly over this passage in Luke which is that Jesus' vision of community assumes a whole lot of time spent around people who really aren't particularly nice, to put it mildly. They don't have our best at heart. These are violent, dishonest people. Jesus' vision of community sends us into the company not only of those who are poor and hungry, but those through, who, who the, through their own violence and dishonesty threaten to make us poor and hungry. We are sent not only into the company of the reviled and defamed, but those who would revile and defame us. So with this vision of community and focus, I want to ask this challenging question that we could return to again for the rest of time. But in light of these passages, in light of this vision, what might Jesus' desire be for us? And as we close, I'd like to revisit that, that prayer that the disciples prayed for Peter and John, and also the prayer, the, the text of which we do not have, that Jesus prayed over his disciples prior to calling and choosing them. And I'd like to, to kind of invite us into a, a time of meditation asking the question, what does Jesus pray over us? What is his desire for us as a community?
for how to live these things out, how to live interdependently, counterculturally in these ways, generously. Jesus prays before choosing his disciples. Jesus says to Peter at the Last Supper, I have prayed for you. Hebrews chapter 7, the author says, he ever lives to make intercession for you. Romans chapter 8, the author says, who shall bring charge against you? Then Paul provides the answer, it is God who justifies. Who shall condemn you? Only Jesus Christ the righteous. Only one person, Jesus, who died, was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who, here it is again, intercedes for us. And maybe this is a groundbreaking idea for, for some of us, that Jesus is praying for us, even now. So if you would, as we enter into a time of, of meditation on this idea, if you'd close your eyes, and maybe imagine yourself surrounded by those who would condemn you or oppose you or perhaps even seek your harm, those whom you have disappointed, those who don't have your best at heart. See them, hear their words. I want to invite you to imagine Jesus by your side. He hasn't come to whisk you away from this hostile environment. And he also hasn't come to dispel those people who seek your harm, perhaps. But he's come to strengthen your faith and give you peace in the midst of opposition and condemnation. And while you're there in that place, with Jesus by your side, can you hear him praying for you? What does he pray for you? Perhaps not protection, but boldness. Perhaps not for financial abundance, but for radical generosity. Parents in the room, what might Jesus pray over us? Perhaps not that we would shelter our kids from difficulty, but that we would exemplify trust and boldness in the midst of hardship and opposition. Or what about for our kids? Perhaps not that they would experience material blessing, but they would be the delivery system for blessing others. What does Jesus pray for you? What does his intercession sound like? as those who are called and chosen for his mission. Can you hear his voice? As we prepare to approach the table Kevin, if you'd come. And as, as you do, as you stand, uh, we prepare to, 
to receive communion, would you let those words of that prayer that Jesus prays echo in your minds? Heavenly Father, give us boldness, not protection. And we repent of those instances when we have prayed for safety or abundance or security. When you have been praying over us, strength of faith that we might strengthen others.